When we left the story of the prophet Jonah last week, the reluctant prophet had finally completed the mission that God had given to him long before. After a painful period of running away from God's call, as you remember, Jonah finally obeyed the word of the Lord, the scripture tells us. And he traveled all the way to Nineveh, the capital city of the nation of Assyria, the cruel country that Israel feared might just sweep down and destroy them at any moment. And making his way into the very heart of that terrible place, Jonah told the people of Assyria of the judgment that God was going to soon bring upon them because of the wickedness of their ways, because of the atrocious treatment that they uh, demonstrated towards the other people of the surrounding earth. Amazingly, the Assyrians, as you may recall, do not end up killing the messenger as Jonah no doubt feared. Instead, the Assyrian king and his subjects do something that Jonah could not actually uh, have, have really had realistic expectations for, though as we discover, he feared this might happen. The Assyrian king dresses himself in sackcloth, a visible sign of humility and sorrow and repentance and contrition. And he and his subjects doing likewise pray that somehow the Lord God might give them a second chance. Which remarkably, God does. And the last verse of chapter 3, as we closed it out last week, reads, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened towards them. Now, we know from subsequent history and scriptural tales that this particular act of contrition on the part of the Assyrians was going to be fairly short-lived. The Assyrians were a bit like that kid who gets caught doing something that he should not be doing. It's something very, very bad, and he anticipates the just consequences of, of his sin, and he wails for mercy. He pleads for mercy. And the child is given an amazing grace in the moment. And the, the child cleans up his act for a little while, but once the scrutiny and the threat of punishment dies down, what happens? He goes back to his old ways. Why? Because there had been no change in his heart. A bit of momentary behavior modification, but no change of his heart. The journey of discipleship is all about a change of heart. It's not about laying enough stress on us, enough threat upon us that we behave for a certain season. It is about encountering God in a way that alters us from the inside out and transforms our whole way of being that leads to a transformation of our way of doing. In similar fashion, Jonah's message brings about a change in the behavior of the Ninevites, but not a real conversion of their heart. 
And one clue to the reality that this is so, even before we actually see the behavioral change uh, begin to dissipate, is that we're told in chapter 3 that the Ninevites believed God. And it's interesting to note in the original language that the word for God that is used there is the generic term Elohim rather than the more personal name of God, which is Yahweh. In other words, what the Ninevites are doing is they're making their appeal to something like fate, uh, some, some impersonal kind of judgment out there, rather than really giving their hearts over to the God of Israel. There's no indication in the text here that the Ninevites are actually abandoning their local gods at all, or their idols. They're, they haven't given up yet the securities that they normally hold on to. We don't see them sacrificing to the Jewish God the way we see the pagan sailors in chapter 1 sacrificing to Israel's God. We're being given clues here that the, the transformation of the Ninevites is not much more than skin deep. What happened in Nineveh was more like a temporary course correction than a remaking of the nation's spiritual identity. And sometime later, the Assyrians will indeed go back to their murdering, cruel, rapacious ways, and God will bring down judgment on them this time. And there will not be escape. No more chances. As I read that story, I think how often my own repentance has been similarly superficial. Oh God, if you just get me out of this, if you just give me a pass on this, I will do this for you or I will never do that again. I think of the many promises that many of us have made to God or to somebody else only to have our core character reassert itself in time because behavior modification is no substitute for heart change. Think of how many people flooded into churches after 9-11, realizing our great dependence upon God. Think how few stayed behind after security was reestablished. This, of course, is not a surprise to God. He knows this about us. He knows how fickle we often are. And yet, nonetheless, he so often chooses to extend his grace and to defer his judgment anyway. Wow. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. So here's the deal. At this moment in the story, the Syrians have changed in some important ways. They have not beheaded Jonah. They have ceased their warring violence. The daring summit that nobody thought could possibly come about or work at all has actually gone stunningly well. Israel is temporarily at least safer now at this moment. And the Assyrians have shown themselves capable of some kind of change. So Jonah, of course, is thrilled, right? I mean, he is tweeting to his friends the success of his endeavors in the capital city uh, of the nation of Assyria. Well, the answer to what really goes on is in chapter 4, and that is where we pick up the story today. And I want to read to you chapter 1, or rather chapter 4 and verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. And if I were God, I'd have been tempted to grant that prayer request. <laughs> I'd have been sorely tempted. Wow, think about this. Jonah would rather die than have the Assyrians not die. That's what's going on here in this prayer. Can you understand that kind of sentiment? On some level, I think I can understand that. I can really understand being in a place like that. It reminds me of something once honestly confessed by Elie Wiesel, the famed survivor of the Nazi Holocaust. I composed a prayer, he says, literally, I composed a prayer saying, God of mercy, have no mercy on these souls, on these murderers of children. God of compassion, have no compassion on these who killed these children. And I was criticized all over the world for that prayer, Wiesel objected. Because this prayer was published all over the world, but I felt it, I still feel it, some people do not deserve forgiveness. Even if they repent, they don't deserve the grace and mercy and compassion of God. I do not think that we can get the message of the book of Jonah until we sit first with that feeling. I remember the murders of my uncle and of my cousin in separate incidents. And I remember how my heart burned to see those people suffer the punishment, the brutal punishment that I knew they deserved for taking the lives of those two good people and for wreaking the havoc that they did on our family. I don't think we can understand the gospel itself until we allow ourselves to feel the reality of the horror of sin and what the just deserts of sin would be until we feel that there really is in some way people who just do not deserve mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness. Few of us may ever allow our emotions to rise to the level of intensity that Jonah expresses in these particular moments, but this sense that we are entirely justified in writing off certain people is a fundamental part of the human condition. And in a sense, part of a moral sensibility around justice. 
I think that this sentiment is behind our millennia-old ability to construct systems of justice. But it is also behind some of the worst parts of the human experience. It is this sentiment that accounts for our capacity to commit genocide, to wage unjust wars, to walk into a bar or a school and gun people down. It's the sentiment at the root of our ability to ignore the plight of whole groups of people or to refuse to consider any longer some other party's point of view. We've come to believe sometimes, we do come to believe that it is actually not only okay to do that, it is righteous to do that. As Jonah felt, it was righteous to insist on the death of the Assyrians. One of the best-selling apps of the handheld device revolution is a, a little application, a game actually, that's called Pocket God. Pocket God. And the game makes you the supreme deity over a little island that is inhabited by residents called pygmies. And uh, you are the large cosmic one and they are the, the pygmies. Among the options available to you as God is the opportunity to go bowling for islanders with huge boulders or to use pygmies as bait for shark fishing. You can throw the islanders into volcanoes if you feel like it, or you can destroy their villages with earthquakes. Uh, the game's description reads, and I quote, what kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. Needless to say, the game provides you with a lot more options to torture and destroy the islanders than to refine and redeem them. Such is the nature of this game. Well, the story of Jonah is the story of humanity's tendency to play pocket God. It is the story of humanity's self-righteous sensibilities sometimes uh, about the sins and the failings of others, and because it is so natural to have these feelings, to do these things, always certain of our rectitude, it is always more than a little disturbing to run into the real God. The real God. Not the God of our imaginations, not the God of our wishes, not the God of our tribe, but the real God this amazing God who meets us in the scriptures and in the story of salvation history. Listen to what God says to Jonah. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And I think the implication there is, is it right for you to let your wrath go to that particular place? My instinct, of course, would be to answer God if I were in Jonah's shoes. Uh, yeah, have you forgotten about these baby-bashing Assyrians and all the horrors that they've done? Is it right for me to feel this way? Extend grace and mercy to those people? Come on, God. Not that. Not that. 
But the story goes on. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. He has not given up hope that God might finally do the right thing and destroy those people. The scene reminds me of that time that the brilliant educator, Dr. Mortimer Adler, suddenly left a discussion group at a polite tea, quite disgusted with everybody in the room. He went out of the room and slammed the door behind him, and somebody, just trying to relieve the tension, remarked, well, he's gone. He's gone. To which the hostess of the party replied, no, he isn't. That's a closet. Myron Augsburger says, commenting on that story, we share the same plight when we attempt to rush from God's presence. From the real God's presence, we find we are confined to ourselves, closeted in upon ourselves. How marvelous it is that God does not leave us closeted in upon ourselves, or at least he doesn't just let us go when we go into that place. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, the story continues, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said again, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Jonah is deep in the closet, isn't he? He is deep in there. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Let me get that right. You've been concerned about the welfare of this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and also many animals. I don't know if it's just me, but does this, does this statement, this description, this 
attitude represented by God here sound at all familiar? I, I read these words and my head just flashes to another story in the Bible about 800 years further on than this particular story when a certain man enters into another great city whose wickedness had come up before God. And though this particular city and its people had been saturated in God's teachings, blessed with God's grace far beyond any other people, they actually still practiced only a very superficial religion. They tolerated stunning injustice in their society towards the poor. They thought of themselves as better than any other nation out there. But as the prophets had so often warned them, they were far from the heart of God. And when God sent his messenger to turn them back towards himself, they did not respond like the Ninevites. Instead, they arrested the man while he was praying in a garden. They took him in chains. They, they, they put him before a, a, a mock trial, a, a trumped up, crazy, in unjust, legal facade. And, and after they had done the sort of things to him that the Assyrians might do, they nearly beat him to death. They peeled the skin off of his back. They drove nails through his hands and his feet. After they had done all these things to someone who was completely innocent, who had only arrived trying to bring that city and its people hope and help, after all of that, that same man they treated this way would respond, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They know not their right hand from their left. Father, show them mercy. Should I not have concern for the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. There is, I think, a profound continuity between this famous story in the Old Testament and the central story of the New Testament. And Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, observes that one of the other places we see that continuity is when we compare the story of Jonah with Christ's most famous story, the parable of the two sons. You may recall that in that tale, a younger son flees from his father's home and heads off to a far country, lost in his own selfishness. The elder son stays at home, but he is lost in his own self-righteousness. Do you see how the story of Jonah is the story of both sons? Jonah is both sons. 
First, like the younger son in Christ's parable, Jonah selfishly flees for the far country. He goes off to Tarshish. He wastes time. He squandered his calling. He endangers his traveling companions. But God, like the father that Jesus talks about in his parable, never stops feeling concern for him. Never stops longing to see him redeemed. And when Jonah finally comes to his senses, God doesn't beat up on him. He doesn't scold him. He welcomes him back and restores him to an important role in his work, just like happens in the parable of the prodigal son. But then Jonah suddenly turns and now becomes like the elder brother in Christ's parable. He gets self-righteously angry that the father is giving second chances to selfish people, like the Assyrians. And like the older brother who stays outside of the house, he's not going to go into the party of, of redemption. He, he sits outside the city, uh, J Jonah does, just resentful that God is lavishing upon the Assyrians the very same gracious concern that God has been lavishing on him all along. And the point, I think, of the whole thing, the message I think God is trying to prophetically speak to every one of us is, is that like Jonah and the Assyrians and the two brothers in Jesus' story, all of us are lost. All of us are lost in some way, not knowing our right hand from our left. We're often far more selfish or more self-righteous than we know and often are both. And if we have any trouble figuring out how that works and where that's showing up, just ask our family. They'll be able to tell us. Amazingly, however, God continues to have this concern for us as he had for Jonah and the Ninevites. He continues to pour out more grace and more mercy and more compassion and more forbearance than we deserve or frankly even recognize. Why? <laughs> Why? Partly to give us more time to come around before the final judgment. Before there are no more opportunities to change our heart. And partly God does this because he is simply like that. Like that. As Jonah in an unusual moment of clarity discerns, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's his heart. That's his heart. So the story of Jonah ends with Jonah sitting in the shade, pondering a lingering question about whether God is actually right to have a heart like that. Beneath it, however, lies an implied deeper question, I think, and it's the question that God is asking not only Jonah, but every one of us. Will you seek 
to be like me? Will you long to have a heart like me? Because there's a world of people out there wondering what I am truly like. And I am sending you to them, says the Heavenly Father. They have seen enough selfish, enough self-righteous people. Show them my heart. Invite them into my house. After all of the grace that I have shown you, who is in a better position to go on my behalf? If not thee. Please pray with me. Oh God, our Father, the cross of Christ, the whole of this magnificent creation, and a billion common graces proclaim the good news that you are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. If these things can speak of your glory and draw people to you, then give us the vision to do likewise. That by the way we live in this season ahead, we may reflect your heart to this world. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.